Okay, just give me a second, folks. Okay, uh, we are back on the record in Diamond Sports. This is Judge Lopez. The time is 11.17 a.m. Turn it over to counsel. Thank you, Your Honor, and thank you for your indulgence. Um, for the record, Brian Herman from Paul Weiss on behalf of the debtors. Um, we were close, Your Honor. I, I thought we were going to get there, but we didn't get all the way there. Okay. So I think we're prepared to go ahead, unless I'm mistaken about that. Okay. Um, so first, Your Honor, thank you again for the time this morning, um, and thank you for making time today on short notice uh, and for entering orders approving uh, many sealing motions filed in the case. <laughs> but these are uh, a lot of confidential information, these agreements, and both we and the objectors wanted to make sure that we protected that confidentiality, so thank you. Um, why are we here? Um, we are here, Your Honor, uh, on a very, what I think is a very straightforward dispute that I think is susceptible to a very straightforward resolution. And the dispute simply is whether the Sons and the other objectors willfully violated the automatic stay by entering into a new agreement without respecting Diamond's back-end rights. Term of art in the industry, back-end rights, meaning at the end of the agreement there are certain protections that the parties have agreed to for the incumbent distributor that's Diamond in the event that the team wants to take the rights somewhere else. This is a 12-year relationship, long-term. We've invested a lot in the relationship, and that's why these back-end rights are there. Um, so that's the dispute. The resolution, Your Honor, I think is pretty simple. The Suns should just comply with the back-end rights. Interestingly, the objectors all seem to acknowledge the back-end rights, yet they seem unwilling to abide by them. At least the Suns seem unwilling to abide by them. And the reason I say they acknowledge them is because they built in this condition, which we think came in at the 11th hour, and I'll explain why we think that. But they, uh, they built in conditionality into their agreement to basically say that the agreement with Gray is subject to whatever our back, Gray and Kisway, subject to whatever our back-end rights are. They don't, they don't agree that they are triggered, but they sort of recognize that these back-end rights may have to be dealt with. Now, the Sun's declarant, Mr. Costello, who was in the courtroom, he makes a big deal in his declaration about the need for speed and certainty and that, the quick, and, and that they need to get on with who's going to broadcast the games, not for this season, but for next season. And we agree with that. We're not looking to slow them down one bit. But respectfully, the quickest and easiest path for the Suns to get certainty as to who is going to broadcast their games is to comply with the back-end rights. Why they have chosen to uh, a different path, which is going to lead to litigation, delay, and uncertainty when they say they want speed and certainty makes no sense to us. Um, we also, Your Honor, have asked for attorney's fees because we think we're entitled to that as a remedy for what we think is a willful violation of the stay. We think the record justifies it. If Your Honor thinks that there needs to be a further hearing, we can discuss that as well. But we think that the resolution is very simple. Comply with the back-end rights and award us attorney's fees. So let's go through the 
analysis of, of whether or not there's been a stay violation. Your Honor, the first prong of the analysis is, is the automatic stay implicated at all? We think the answer to that is clearly yes. And the reason for that is we have an existing executory contract that has valuable back-end rights, including a right of first refusal, so that if they want to go enter into a new agreement and the new agreement is less favorable than their last offer to us, we get the right to match. That's, that's what's called the right of first refusal. In terms of whether the contract is still in existence, I don't think there's really any debate about that. The term runs through the current NBA season. The season is still ongoing. Um, I don't think anybody really takes issue with the term, although um, the sons in their pleading, I think, are very careful about, well, they don't have any more rights to broadcast our games. That's true, but the season is still ongoing. I don't think it's a, it's a serious issue, but they can tell us if they think that the agreement has expired. Gray and Kissway certainly don't seem to take issue with that. So we have a contract. The contract is in existence. Second question is, does the contract qualify as property of the estate? And the rights that we have under the contract are those property of the estate. Nobody disputes that. We have an existing contract constitutes property of the estate. As property of the estate, it is uh, these rights are protected by the automatic stay. In particular, Section 362A3 of the automatic stay says that any act to obtain possession of property of the estate or to exercise control over the property of the estate is protected by the automatic stay. So we have an existing contract. It's a property right protected by the automatic stay. So now we move to the next prong of the analysis, which is, has there been a violation of the automatic stay? Um, <clears throat> and has that violation been willful? We think the answer is clearly yes, and I'll explain why. Your Honor, there's a decision in the Fifth Circuit that's right on point. I'm going to spend more time with it later in the presentation, but for now, I will cite it. It's the Chestnut decision. It's cited in our uh, motion. It's at 422 F3rd 298. And that decision laid out three elements for a willful violation of the automatic stay. And those three elements are as follows. One, the defendant must have known of the existence of the stay. Two, the defendant's acts must have been intentional. And three, these acts must have violated the stay. And that's Chestnut at 302. Your Honor, there's no question that the first two elements are met. The sons and the objectors knew about the bankruptcy, and thus they knew about the automatic stay. Second, there's no question that the sons and the other objectors' acts were intentional. The parties willfully entered into a new binding agreement that expressly referenced Diamond's back-end rights, and the sons' CEO stated after they announced the deal, quote, we are moving forward with this deal, meaning the Gray deal. And that is uh, in the Laufer Declaration, Exhibit I, uh, and it's in the Exhibit and Witness List at 542-10. So they knew about the stay, and they acted intentionally. So that leaves the third element, which is did the sons and the other objectors' acts violate the stay? 
And remember what we're talking about here, Your Honor. We're talking about 362A3, which says any act to obtain control or possession of a state property. Any act. It's very broad. So let's see what they did. And I'm only going to dwell on the most relevant period, Your Honor. There's a lot of stuff in the Costello Declaration about the way in the past about when they made their last offer to us and we made our last offer to them and whether they were allowed to have a negotiation with Gray and Kisway. We're not taking issue with any of that. I'm only going to focus on the period that I think uh, implicated the automatic say. And I'm going to start with the first correspondence that we got, which is a letter from the Sons on April 19th. And it's at the Lauford Declar it's attached to the Lauford Declaration as Exhibit D, and it's in your exhibit and witness binder at 542-5. And this is a letter from Josh Bartlestein, who is the CEO of the Suns, addressed to Diamond Sports. And the letter is problematic for the Suns and the objectors for a few different reasons. First, and importantly, the letter itself acknowledges our back-end rights. Specifically, the letter says, as a courtesy to DSG, and as contemplated by Section 21 of the agreement, Section 21 of the agreement is the back-end rights. If we have not received a response from DSG within five business days, we will plan to proceed with an announcement of the new transaction and will deem the back-end rights set forth in Section 21 to be satisfied in full. Now, Your Honor, I would ask, why would you send a letter acknowledging the back-end rights, acknowledging the five-day clock that Diamond Sports has to respond to the letter if the back-end rights didn't apply? They will say, we did it as a courtesy. That's what they said in the letter. I would say they did it because they knew that the back-end rights applied, and they were hoping that Diamond Sports wouldn't respond. The other thing I would say about the letter, Your Honor, is it's misleading in two key respects. First, it references an offer from Gray and Kisway and an unsigned term sheet that curiously excludes the very conditionality that they're seeking to hide behind in the agreement with Gray and Kisway. Yet, we know from Gray's objection that the actual agreement was signed on April 19th and was immediately binding on the parties. It wasn't an offer. It was a binding term sheet. And the binding nature of that term sheet itself violates Section 21 of the agreement. And I'm going to show you why. Section 21 of the agreement, specifically Section 21B2, which is our right of first refusal, specifically says that in the event that the team, which is the Suns, proposes to enter into an agreement with any party other than Fox, Fox was the predecessor to Diamond, which offer includes non-cash consideration, 
the cash equivalent of such non-cash consideration shall be determined in accordance with this section, and this is the important part, before the team may enter into such agreement. There is non-cash consideration in the Gray and Kisway offer. As a result of that, they were not entitled to enter into this agreement without violating Section 21. The agreement goes on to say, Your Honor, in the next sentence, any third-party offer made to or by another party other than Fox, which the team wishes to accept and which is less favorable to the team, and this is a key part, with respect to any material term, any material term, then the team included in the team final offer, that's defined as a less favorable offer, must be presented to the team, by the team, I'm sorry, to Fox. Fox shall have five business days. That's the five business days they reference in the letter, except the period gets extended to value non-cash consideration. And then it goes on to say, if such less favorable offer includes any non-cash consideration, then Fox and the team, prior to the team entering into the agreement, has to go through the back-end rights process. So they had no right to enter into the new agreement before they complied with Section 21. Your Honor, I'm loath to interrupt uh, my colleague's argument, but he's reading from a confidential agreement uh, into the record. And all of this is confidential, filed under seal. I have to object to reading into a contract, which is, in fact, a confidential contract and not part of the public record. Counsel, to respond? Yes. Um, Your Honor, Section 25 of the agreement has a carve-out from confidentiality. And I'm not intentionally not reading any uh, economic terms, because I am sensitive to that. But Section 25 of the agreement has a carve-out from confidentiality in subsection E, which says that you can disclose information in the agreement in order to enforce the rights granted to any party here under or to perform its obligations here under. And enforcing our rights is what we're doing. Counsel, what's your response? I, I don't think that that exception swallows the whole of the fact that this is a confidential contract. There's a way we can have this argument, but it shouldn't be on the record publicly. What are you proposing, counsel? Well, I would, and I would suggest that we seal the courtroom and close the courtroom to the public for the times that, uh, that counsel is going to use, uh, acknowledge confidential materials as part of his argument. I don't fact, think that the fact, I mean, the exception he just read to the contract, Your Honor, would eat, the, would eat the entire confidentiality because he could say anything is needed to enforce it and that therefore we could talk about anything. Take a look at the language. It's page 13 of um, what is? Yep, I'm looking at it now. Okay. I think that's what it says. He can continue, but I don't want you using economic terms um, or think carefully. And if you can speak, you want to speak generally about 
what it is. I mean, I think it's out there. But that's what it says. It says, he says what it says, and I'm going to enforce it as written. It may swallow. It may be broad. But if they want to enforce their rights, which is what's going on here today, enforcing their rights under the agreement to compel performance, that's what they're asking for. They get to go forward. So I think you get to go. So overruled. Thank you, Your Honor. And, Your Honor, if we go back to Section 21, the reason that the provision I read about the less favorable offer is relevant is because, as I said, it speaks as to whether any term in the Gray Agreement is less favorable to any term in the last proposal the Sons made to Diamond. And without getting into the specifics of the dollar amounts, it is patently obvious on the face of the agreements that the rights fees that Gray is prepared to pay to the Sons is less than the rights fees that we would have had to pay to the Sons under their last proposal to us. So that is a less favorable term which triggers that provision. So the point is, Your Honor, when they sent the letter and they said that they were going to comply with Section 21, they already had not complied with Section 21 because Section 21 says you can't enter into a new agreement until you go through the back-end rights, and they had already entered into the new agreement. That's one problem with the letter. The second problem with the letter is it's disingenuous, and that's being generous because what the letter says is if we have not received a response from Diamond within five business days, we plan to proceed with announcing the deal. Okay. Well, next step in the chronology, Your Honor, is that Diamond did respond within the five business days. That is where I want to turn next, which is Diamond's responsive letter to the Sons, which was within the five business days. That letter was on April 25th when we specified to the Sons that we thought that the offer, the quote-unquote offer, we didn't know at the time it was a binding agreement with Gray, was a less favorable offer, and that triggered our rights under Section 21. We put them on notice of that on April 25th. That's the Laufer Declaration Exhibit E, and it's in the Witness and Exhibit Binder at 542-6. And so if they were being honest in their letter from their CEO that said if you respond, unless you respond, we're going to go forward with the public announcement, then one would think they wouldn't go forward with the public announcement having received the response. However, on April 27th, we learn that the Sons are preparing to announce the next day publicly the deal with Gray Television and Kisway, that they were going to announce it on April 28th. So what do we do? I send letters, Your Honor, both to the Sons, and let me tell you, scramble to send letters to put people on notice in the evening of the 27th, which is when we learned of this, to say, wait a second. You should know that what you're about to do violates our rights, which we had already told them existed, and that it could violate the automatic stay. We think it does, and that the other objectors could be tortiously interfering with our rights. So people are put on notice on the 27th 
don't do this because you are violating the automatic stay. Now, mind you, we didn't know at the time because the letter that they sent characterized the Gray proposal as an offer, not as a signed contract. We didn't know at the time that they had actually entered into a binding agreement with Gray and Kissway. Had we known that, we would have also said, you just breached our contract. But um, we thought if we put them on notice, at least they have the opportunity to stand down and we can have a discussion about whether or not or how to proceed uh, with respect to the deal that they want to enter into. But no, they don't do that. What they do is their general counsel, who's in the courtroom, sends an email to uh, Philip Garabasian, who's also in the courtroom, in-house lawyer at Diamond. And he says, thank you for your time today. As a follow-up to our discussion, I just wanted to send a quick note that we have updated the official press statement being released tomorrow to state that the new media deal is subject to any required resolution with diamonds. So instead of refraining from moving ahead, they decide, oh, I have a clever idea. Let's just update the press release and say, it's subject to whatever rights Diamond may have. Um, <clears throat> never respond to the letter of April 27th. Uh, and, and then on April 28th, we wake up to a press release that says the Suns have entered into a new deal with Gray and Kissway. And there's the quote from the CEO, we are moving forward with this deal. Now, Great Television, to their credit, did respond to my letter on April 27th. And they said, for the first time, you don't have to worry because our agreement with the Suns has this conditionality about you know, whatever rights you have, it's subject to those rights. We immediately respond. I send a, a letter to uh, Grace Council and say, can you share that agreement with us? Never heard back. Crickets. And so, Your Honor, it wasn't until Monday when the Suns and Gray filed their objections that we actually saw the agreement and we actually saw the condition. And so I think beyond a doubt that not only does that reflect a stay violation, but it's pretty reckless willful stay violation. We warned them that they were going to violate the stay. We told them why we thought they were going to violate the stay, and they did it anyway. Now, what they will say is that there's conditionality in the agreement, so don't worry. Because whatever back-end rights you have, they'll be, they have to be respected before the gray and the kissway deal can become effective. That's their defense. But, Your Honor, I'm going to show you why, using the chestnut decision that I referenced earlier, why that sleight of hand does not acquit them of their stay violation. Your Honor, this chestnut decision is, I think, squarely on point. And I'll tell you why. The facts are pretty simple. Husband and wife 
wife owns real property in her name. They're married in Texas, which, as you know, is a community property state. Husband files for bankruptcy. The bank that had a, mor uh, a mortgage on the wife's uh, real property is about to go through a foreclosure sale. And the husband's bankruptcy intercedes. And the bank is sitting there saying, well, gee, what do I do? I don't know whether the real property is implicated by the husband's bankruptcy and whether my foreclosure is stayed. And so what the bank decides to do is to go forward with the foreclosure proceeding and say, property's in the wife's name. I guess I'll ignore the fact that Texas is a community property state, and I'll just go ahead. And the court says, you know, and this is the Fifth Circuit. This is um, uh, Judge Clement says, here we face the question of whether the creditor violates the stay if, without permission of the bankruptcy court, he forecloses on an asset to which the debtor has only an arguable claim of right. And then they define that arguable claim of right as arguable property. And they go through and discuss, what do you do when you're dealing with arguable property? And they phrase the issue as, we must determine how bankruptcy law treats the unilateral seizure of arguable property. So what do we have here? We have the Phoenix Suns, who are subject to a contract with Diamond, who decide unilaterally, with Gray and Kisway, to enter into a new agreement because they've determined that our back-end rights don't apply. And, but they've put in a fail-safe, they think, in the contract that basically says, but if we're wrong, we'll vindicate your back-end rights somehow. The problem, Your Honor, is that once they enter into that deal with Gray and Kisway, our back-end rights are gone. We can't then exercise a right of first refusal. So how does this work? Essentially what they're saying is what the bank said in uh, the Chestnut case, which is, we're just going to go ahead and foreclose them out. We're going to foreclose their back-end rights, and we're going to hope that we're right. And let's so the, so the case, I think, is very analogous. Obviously, we're not dealing with the foreclosure of real property. We're dealing with contract rights under a media rights agreement. But I think you can see the analogy. And so what does the court go on to determine? You go to page 303 of that decision, Your Honor. The court says, in, in one of a few quotes I want to read, it says, the breadth of Section 362, this is to answer the question of what are we supposed to do when you're dealing with arguable property. They say the breadth of Section 362 suggests congressional intent, intent that in the face of uncertainty or ambiguity, courts should presume protection of arguable property. Okay. So we should presume that our back-end rights and our right of first refusal are protected. They go on to say, if a creditor wishes to seize property 
for lack of adequate protection or for lack of equity, he cannot do so first and thereby force the debtor to vindicate his rights after the seizure. Instead, he must first seek relief from the bankruptcy court. Where seized property is arguable property, it is no answer for the creditor to defend the foreclosure by claiming that the property was not properly covered by the stay. So what that means here is that rather than presuming that the back-end rights didn't apply and trying to cover it up through some condition in a contract, what the Fifth Circuit is saying is that the son should have come into court and said, let's seek relief from the automatic stay. Do we have to do that? Maybe not. Does the Fifth Circuit say you should do that? Yes, because we're dealing with, in their view, in our view, it's clear that our back-end rights apply. In their view, at best, we're dealing with arguable property. So they should have come in and sought relief from the stay. They didn't do that. And then, Your Honor, in a paragraph that I think is incredibly poignant to this situation, the Fifth Circuit says why that makes sense, why the creditor has to come in and seek the relief first as opposed to trying to fix it later. And specifically, they say, and this is at um, also at page 304, finally, a retroactive classification of the property to shape the scope of the stay would encourage creditor abuse. Knowing a debtor is in a difficult pecuniary situation condition and may not be able to vindicate his rights in a later adversary proceeding, which is what we had to do, a creditor could simply seize arguable property without fear of later judicial retribution. Or the creditor could gamble that a court would accept potential legal arguments long after foreclosure, as did the district court in this case, because originally the bankruptcy court said it was a stay violation, the district court reversed, and then the Fifth Circuit agreed with the bankruptcy court. Um, law, the, the, or the creditor can gamble that a court would accept potential legal arguments long after foreclosure when the harm may be more difficult to remedy. Given that in some instances arguable property is in fact the debtor's property, these outcomes increase the probability that the debtor will be permanently deprived of his wrongfully seized assets. And that is exactly what would happen here if the sons, Gray, and Kisway were allowed to proceed. Last point on this case, Your Honor, is um, <clears throat> on page 305, the Fifth Circuit says, as already noted, such intricate legal analyses do not easily lend themselves to a unilateral determination of the merits of the seizing party and therefore enhance the already present possibility that property of the state would be improperly seized. In such situations, unilateral foreclosures are particularly offensive. That's what they're trying to do, Your Honor. They're trying to foreclose our right of first refusal. Not foreclosing on real property, I get it, but they're trying to foreclose on our right of first refusal. And what the Fifth Circuit has said is that if you want to do that, seek relief from the stay. And if you don't, you're violating the automatic stay. Your Honor, I don't think I can find a better case in this circuit controlling that would say that what they did violated the automatic stay. And for them to hide behind the conditionality is, I think, the equivalent 
of a bank robber going into a bank, taking the money, and leaving a note that said, if I was wrong and I shouldn't have taken the money, I'll give it back, and that somehow that quits them of robbery. I don't think that's how the law works, Your Honor, and I think that the Fifth Circuit has made that clear. So, in, to conclude, Your Honor, I think it's pretty obvious that the Sons and the other objectors have willfully violated the automatic stay. I think it's equally as obvious what needs to happen here, which is that our back-end rights, including our right of first refusal, have to be complied with. They can negotiate with Kisway and Gray. They can get to a final you know, agreement in principle. They call it an agreement in principle. It's actually a binding agreement. But they can certainly get to an agreement in principle. We have no issue. But then they have to comply with the back-end rights. Um, the sons and the other objectors should also be forced to compensate us. This is an expensive hearing to have to come in and do what the Fifth Circuit has already said we shouldn't have to do, which is come back and try to vindicate our rights. We think the record is clear that they should compensate us in attorney's fees today. If Your Honor thinks you need more evidence on that, we can certainly schedule a follow-up evidentiary hearing. But we think the record suggests very brazen behavior, and that justifies the remedy of attorney's fees. Your Honor, with that, I would conclude my opening statement. I reserve the right to reply, obviously, based on whatever the other side has to say. And then I could do it now, or I could do it at the very end. I would like to move various exhibits into evidence. Let me just hear then a brief opening from other parties, and then we'll talk about documents admitted into evidence. Thank, Thank you, you, Your Honor. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Will Phillips, on behalf of the Sons Legacy Partners in Covington and Burling. Um, I had had a presentation which I was I apparently had some trouble connecting to, so I'm going to do my best to waddle through this, Your Honor. Um, Your Honor, if I may, is it possible to get presenter rights so I can put it into the camera? Sure, just tell me where you are. It's Nima Sani. Okay, well, then I got to. You turn your camera. Is it possible to turn your camera on? Then I can see and find you. It's just actually, you know what? If you look, there is um, Robert Giancetti. If you scroll down to R, he's our associate who's going to run the projector. Uh, where is he? Now, Robert, he's under R. I'm, I'm just, I'm just the big R. I did find. Alrighty. Let's see if there's just another. Robert, if you're there, can you just turn on, turn on your camera just so, I, just so I know I've got the right R? <laughs> there are several O's. That's what's got me scary that I may get the wrong R. Ah, there you go. 
you go. Thank you, Your Honor. If I may, you behind me. Um, so, Your Honor, the fallacy of Mr. Herman's argument, of the debtor's argument, is that it presupposes that they have rights that this violates that they do not have. In fact, um, what I will intend to show, Your Honor, is that our, our conduct has been entirely consistent with the telecast rights agreement throughout, that there's no automatic stay violation. Even if there were a breach of contract, which there hasn't been, it wouldn't constitute a violation of the automatic stay. And because there's been no automatic stay violation, much less a willful one, uh, there's been no breach of contract. So let me start with the timeline, if I may, of compliance. Next page, Nina. There you go. So the Suns and Diamond began discussions of a potential to new telecast rights agreement in December of 2021, Your Honor. And what I would submit to Your Honor after I go through this is what you'll see is the debtor is very cleverly trying to create new contract rights that it doesn't have. And it's using the bankruptcy process improperly to create those rights and therefore force itself so that it is the only broadcast partner the Suns can use, and, and if I may. So in December of 2021, we began discussions of potential new telecast rights. In March of 2022, under the agreement, our obligation to negotiate exclusively with Diamond ended. I don't think there's any dispute about that. That's what the contract says. Months later, in August of 2022, we, Diamond made a final offer to the Sons about carriage. And then on October 14th of 2022, we made a final offer to Diamond. That was rejected on October 24th and pursuant to the very clear terms of the agreement. At that point in time, the team was free to enter into an agreement with any other party other than the debtor uh, for such telecast rights. Free to talk to anybody about it, as long as we respected the possibility of a right of first refusal. Not the actuality of it, because it's not, it, it's only a possible right of first refusal if other terms of the contract are in fact triggered. The we continued actually to talk to the debtor for months and months and months, hoping to resolve this. In April of 2023, because we, and I think our papers go through this, Your Honor, because we'd been frustrated at been trying to resolve and who to talk to and trying to get some kind of communication back from the debtor, we reached a, uh, an agreement of, of a, you know, a, a term sheet with Gray and Kisway. Now, that was a term sheet and it had a very important condition in it. And I would refer, Your Honor, to Exhibit 1 to the Costello deposition. And you'll notice that in there, it says that, that the, the, that term sheet, it's not a full agreement, but that term sheet is subject to any required resolution with the incumbent regional sports network 
And upon the failure of that resolution, this agreement will terminate and be deemed null and void ab initio with no further force and effect. We exercised our right to talk to other people, Your Honor, that we had. And we entered into a term sheet which between us and Gray is binding, but with respect to the debtor, has no force and effect if, in fact, they rightfully exercise a right of first refusal that is contingent and not necessary. And I say it's contingent, Your Honor, because they only have a right of first refusal if it's a less favorable offer under the terms of the contract. We don't believe they have a right of first refusal. But we have told them since the beginning we are willing to undergo the process for determining whether they have a right of first refusal. In other words, let's determine whether you have back-end rights. We have already made clear that we intend to live up to that. Is there anything in writing or any exhibit where it shows that you actually made those statements after this letter was sent? Well, our letters to them have always said that we will comply with it. Can you show me where in the April 19th letter you say that or any time after April 19th? I'm just asking for today. I'm trying to follow your argument, but I'm just trying to follow. Can we also agree that the term sheet that you sent doesn't actually call it a term sheet? It refers to it as a capital A agreement, and there's not this section that you're referring to isn't in your April 19th letter? It also contemplates, Your Honor, it contemplates a full long-term agreement, and it also says very clearly that you tell me, can you point to me in the agreement where you're talking, where the contemplation is? Sure. I do see, and I don't want to get into it, but there is a provision in the agreement where it's in what you sent over in your April 19th letter that says it's subject to things, but the provision that you're talking to never mentions it. Your Honor, if you have the agreement with Gray Kisway in front of you in the second paragraph. I'm just looking at your contract. I'm looking at what you sent over on April 19th. Okay. That's what I'm starting with. I'm referring to the Gray Kisway agreement. Oh, no, I'm referring to what you sent over that you're calling. We only sent them the economic terms because that is what they had the right to do. The first page of it is not sent over, but it's still part of the agreement. No, I understand, but my point is you mentioned that you had been constantly speaking to them about, you know, complying with the terms of the agreement. I just want to know, on April 19th you sent a letter, and I'm trying to figure out when, where, or when you communicate, or if there's anything that you can point me to that supports the statement that you're making on the record. Your Honor, but our general counsel sent an email to them saying all of this was entirely conditional. Is that in your witness and exhibit list? It is not in the witness and exhibit list because we didn't think it was necessary to put it. Okay. But we told them, and when we sent the economic terms, we told them and sent an email to them that these were conditional upon, and we don't dispute it. They're conditional. If they have back-end rights, if they have a right of first refusal, we will observe that. Can you tell me where you said that? That's what I'm trying to find. There's an email, Your Honor, and we didn't submit it in the record because I didn't think it was necessary to submit it. You didn't think it was necessary to submit in the record something that said that you would comply with the agreement? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm told that my adversary just read this into the record that we sent it to them. 
That's fine. I just want to know what you submitted, your evidence. I mean, I think there's a – we'll get into docs. And your Honor, maybe I can be helpful. I, I just want to know. I'm following what's going on. I want to start with April 19th and see what, what happened. That's, that's what this is all about, right? The debtor filed. There's something happened on April 19th, and I want to start there, and I want to move. If, In other words, maybe someone did communicate that they would comply, but I just want to know on April 19th whether that was communicated. And if not, then when was it communicated? It was It was communicated. The email Mr. Herman has, we communicated to them. What's the date of that email? April 27th. Right. That's the day before the press release comes out? That's the day after we got the letter. I think it's the day we got the letter from Mr. Herman saying that this was not in compliance. But the deal itself was always and always was subject to their rights, whatever those rights are. We have a dispute over whether or not they have rights. Who, who makes that determination? Well, that's, the, the, uh, that's a good question, Your Honor. Uh, there's an appraisal, appraisal process that is the next step of, of that determination. And what we have been discussing is uh, in connection with that determination, Your Honor. Have you provided any evidence or anything in writing that shows that you were looking to appoint the appraiser before well, you sent the press release out? Before we sent the press release out, Your Honor, but even the press release, if well, I may, gonna, if, I, you point, if you turn to the press release, Your Honor. I'm looking at the press I'm asking before it, the press release. It says the new agreement is subject to the approval and any required resolution with the incumbent regional know, I'm, I'm asking before the press release. After the April 19th letter and the April 25th response, was there anything in writing that talked about the appraisal process? The, the agreement itself talks about the appraisal process. I'm asking your communications. I'm asking for the Sun's communication. I am not aware, Your Honor, of any communication which says that. But it, the understanding, the reason the term sheet is conditional, there was always an understanding that if they have uh, back-end right of first refusal rights, they were going to be observed. We were going to go through a process to make that determination. When did the Suns communicate that this was a term sheet and not an agreement? Because what you sent over uses the word capital A agreement. When we sent them an email, we pointed the fact that this, it is an agreement between us and Gray. Right. It just doesn't but, bind them. Or but you call it a term sheet here, and you, it's an agreement. And the, I'm just, I want to make sure that we're using the same terms. The, when the, did you communicate that it was the an agreement? The agreement them, itself, sir, Your Honor, says that the parties agree that this agreement is intended to be a summary of material terms. But when did you communicate that to Diamond, Arizona, or any one of the debtors? When did you communicate that point? After we received the letter from them. After April 25th? After, after April 25th, yes, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. But in every statement that we have made, we have always observed every right in the contract, Your Honor, and left it open. They don't have an absolute right. They have a possible right. We've observed that. And we've always and we've always let them know that we've never acted to arrogate to ourselves the right to do this deal without observing their rights, Your Honor. And that's the important thing here. And that's the reason this case is different, frankly, from the case that Mr. Herman cites, because we're not a robber leaving a note, Your Honor. I agree. We haven't had a we haven't there's been no robbery of anything. There's nothing that they have a right to that's been taken.
We had the right to talk exclusively, to talk to others. We had a right to come to terms with others. And let me, if I may, Your Honor, the reason this is so important is because the time is running on us to reach a deal for broadcast rights. That takes some time. The new season begins in October. And so we can't, and what's been going on with our frustration with the debtor is by pushing us from making a deal any other place, they're going to leave us no alternative but to go with them. Do you have anything in the record that can show me the frustration that you're feeling? Well, you sent them a document that you said you still haven't responded. Is there anything in the record you can point me to? Mr. Costello's declaration goes through this, Your Honor, at some length. Are you going to put Mr. Costello on the stand? I'm happy to. We've submitted his declaration. Okay. And it goes through the months of time that it's been frustrating. I'm talking about from April 19th. That's what I'm trying to talk about. In other words, this is a motion to determine whether there was a stay violation. So we have to start post-petition. The party's history is important but not relevant as to whether there was a stay violation and whether there's going to be compelling performance. So we've got to start at some point, and it really starts at the time that you send the April, your client sends the April 19th letter. Your Honor, there can't be a violation unless we've disrespected their rights somehow. I agree. We've never disrespected their rights. We've always observed them at every given point. Okay. Who makes that? We stand today ready to resolve the issues with respect to whether or not they have a right at the back end of this contract. Who gets to make that determination? Well, the parties have been discussing that for quite some time. I have to say that I don't believe there's complete agreement on it, but we have been close to a process to do that. Okay. So without further questions, Your Honor, I'm happy. I'd like to reserve a right to respond. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me hear from Gray. And I know there's someone from Cozen on the line for Kismay. I believe I've still unmuted your line. I'll certainly give you an opportunity to do so, to speak. Let me just hear from Gray. May it please the Court. My name is Mike McConnell with Jones Day, and I represent the objector, Gray Television, in regard to the debtors' emergency motions. And as to Gray, the motion should be denied for three reasons. First, none of the conduct, none of the conduct attributed to Gray by Diamond, Arizona, constitutes a violation of the automatic stay applicable to the debtors. As confirmed by the colloquy amongst counsel here already, the only agreement that Gray has signed completely protects and conditions the address of any issues that the Sons may have, that the Sons and Diamond, Arizona may have under that agreement, to which Gray is not a party. But its only agreement in principle is strictly conditioned and deemed void ab initio if those rights are not addressed and resolved. End of period. End of paragraph. It's over. There is nothing by Gray that has done anything or executed that has interfered with those interests. Second, 
as a natural person, non-natural person, the debtor's request for attorney's fees, et cetera, under Section 362 of the Bankruptcy Code should not be authorized under the prevailing view of the courts. And third, they have not, as to Gray, shown clear and convincing evidence of a violation of the stay. And for these reasons, we respectfully submit that the motion be denied in its entirety. First, the reason no acts by Gray violated the automatic stay. As noted in Gray's opposition brief, it does not dispute and take any position before this court that in any way disavows the broad scope of the automatic stay. It's respectful of that stay and understands it. It also does not dispute that the debtor's pre-petition executory contracts before rejection or assumption remain property subject to the stay. Accordingly, a party's attempt to exercise control over an executory contract, even an arguable executory contract, may violate the stay. But, Your Honor, these points are not in dispute. The issue, and this is not the issue that was presented in Chestnut, which, by the way, counsel says is their best case. Chestnut doesn't reach the issue as to exercise of control. It only talks about whether an arguable contract can be an executory contract. That's not an issue. This contract was not only acknowledged, it's specifically carved out and is publicly stated by Gray to the world and privately to counsel before they proceeded with this action that it was subject to those terms and it knew that. But did not include our press release, which includes that language, Your Honor, which is going to be Exhibit 2 in what we submit and is Exhibit B to our response papers. And so I want to talk a little bit more about the issue that's not addressed in Chestnut, which is whether there was any action by Gray to exercise control. And the plain language, Your Honor, which is set forth in Exhibit A to our response brief, it will be Exhibit 1 in the exhibits that we intend to tender, makes it abundantly clear, abundantly clear, that it is completely conditioned on whatever rights they have being addressed before they can proceed to a final agreement. It is correct. It's a binding preliminary agreement in principle between Gray and the Sons, but it's not effectuated and cannot become final by the express terms of that agreement unless and until whatever rights the incumbent provider has are addressed. Gray was very careful to respect those rights. And nothing in here interferes, whatever those rights are, because, Your Honor, we don't know what the rights are. We're in the dark. These are all redacted and under seal. We're not part of that. All we knew, though, is whatever they are, that needs to get worked out before we're the next one up to bat. They have to get through. This is not, notwithstanding colorful terms such as sleight of hand and a robbery in the dark, this is not that at all. We have not gone into anything. We haven't taken anything. 
and in fact have been deferential and allowed them to have whatever breathing space they need to proceed in whatever they need to do on these back end rights, which again, we don't take a position. And by the way, Your Honor, that same agreement in principle says it will be deemed void ab initio if that condition isn't met. So again, as to Gray, we have not done anything to exercise control over an executory contract. In fact, have assiduously at every moment done everything we can to avoid such exercise of control. Um, if you let me one second, Your Honor. Sure. And so, <clears throat> and the other thing to keep in mind, Your Honor, they were no longer based on, and I know that you, you said, look, pre, you know, pre-petition events may be interesting, but we're here on the automatic stay. But it is important to know that they did have exclusive rights of, to negotiate, and that we only learned this because we got a redacted copy of the agreement and have looked at it. And based upon that reading, those exclusive rights to negotiate expired last year, 2022. So, and but for receipt of an, their agreement, not far from interfering with their agreement, their agreement expressly contemplates that they will receive a third-party offer, such as an offer from Gray. That's the only thing, according to their, what they've shared with us, that even triggers the very back-end rights that they want to pursue here. I think there's a, and I don't want to get too much into it, but I understand your point from Gray's perspective, but it's an interesting question under the agreement whether what one defines as an agreement, little a, whether the offer, whether that constitutes an offer, which is different than an agreement, or whether a binding term sheet constitutes a little a that they can't enter into unless uh, if there's a less favorable offer. But I understand the point. Right, Your Honor. And I, got, that, did I, I, got, I got the great point. Like, hey, yes. when I signed, I conditioned, and I haven't said anything different. Yes, Your Honor. I got and, it. And, that, and that is the, I got the, it. The, the only point here. Um, and, and so then we turn, um, and, and if we look specifically they, for what they contend constitutes an exercise of control, they cite two cases. Mm -hmm. um, as I recall, in uh, paragraph 29 of their initial brief. They don't touch it in the reply brief based upon my review of that brief. Um, and, Your Honor, I think both of those cases are very distinguishable, and, and now they've mentioned the Chestnut case. I'll, I'll start there. Obviously, Chestnut is different than this situation. That actually involved the, the bank went in, seized the property, <laughs> and sold it. Right, that's exercise of control over arguable property of the estate. They act, that property was gone. They acted on it. They sold it. That's not the case here. Gray has I'll done take that. The, and I'll, everybody's dancing around the issue because no one knows what I'm going to say, but I will. I got it. Chestnut's also an individual case, right? And the question is, does 363K apply in an individual? You know, it applies to individuals, but does it apply to corporations, right? Because if you then then the analysis changes whether willful comes into effect or not. I got it. So let's just 
Oh, but yes, Your and Honor. I, and I would tell the debtors that, you know, I think the debtors have an uphill battle on 363K with me. So I'll put that on the table since I'm putting a lot on the table while everybody's talking. So uh, Yes, Your Honor. And, I, and I'm, I'm happy to move on. 62K, not 363K, 362K. Let me make sure I've got my I believe that's, lingo right, if I said it incorrectly. Um, and Well, thank you, Your Honor. And I won't belabor the point on the other two cases in case it's the extraction uh, oil and gas case. But 105 is an issue, right? That's the other No, that was um, basically what they were saying there is that in that instance, it involved a oil supplier who had a midstream uh, provider, and they uh, rejected that contract. And the debtor entered into new contracts with third-party truckers and wanted to proceed with delivery of its its oil through them. And the uh, prior uh, shipper, notwithstanding the rejection of its contract, went ahead, filed injunction against these truckers, and took action to prevent them from shipping the oil. That And that stands for the limited purpose that if you actually take litigation action against a third-party counterparty to the debtor, hmm. that can finally go on action. We don't have that here. That's certainly not the facts in this case. And the only other case they cite for exercise of control is the Nine Point Energy Holdings case. Your Honor, very, very similar to the same case that I just mentioned. Again, involved an oil uh, producer. And instead of actually filing an injunction against the new counterparties, it sent threatening letters to threaten them not to proceed with uh, shipping the oil. Again, there's no threats against a counterparty. So I think those cases are, are not close to what we have here. They don't point to a case where there's a situation where a third party, such as Gray, expressly honors and shows deference to the executory contract under any scenario somehow violates an automatic stay. Nothing. And these are the two closest cases they have. And the third case, Chestnut, that reason that was the reason I was focusing on that, Your Honor. So that was their best case in the Fifth Circuit involved an actual seizure. So I don't think there's an exercise of control, and that's necessary to for the violation of the automatic stay. Give me that last sentence again. Your last sentence was what? The the last sentence is they haven't shown that the actions by Gray exercise control yeah, so I'm over gonna, the contract. I'm going to tell you I I. I I understand the point, but the code speaks of any act to exercise control, so it's the act that violates the stay, whether there's actual exercise of control. I understand your point, because as it relates to Gray, but the code stops acts, right? That's that's what violates. It's the acts, whether one actually exercises control or not. Could be a separate violation of the stay, but the code speaks of acts, stays acts, and that's what we've got to look for today, whether there's an act. Um, yes, Your but, Honor. But I understand the point, right? Usually, right. usually the act, it's its all one thing, right? It's usually the attempt, and the attempt works, and that's people come into court saying you snatched something and, and you're exercising control over it. But exactly. I'm just making the distinction between the Yes, Your Honor, no, I, and but, I appreciate I that. And, and, and my only distinction is is this doesn't arise mm -hmm. to that act. This didn't arise to an act of got it to exercise control. 
It was just the opposite. It was to respect whatever process they have, and it was completely preserved those rights. Then the only other points, they do make some arguments concerning the timing of when they learned that there was this conditional right, and I know that was part of the discussion with counsel as well. We obviously can't speak to the direct communications between the Suns and Diamond, Arizona. We're not privy to that. But I do know that no later than the date of the press release that was issued by Gray, which is item A, I mean, excuse me, B to our response brief, but it was not included in the papers that were filed by Diamond, Arizona. It says expressly in the press release that the agreement is subject to any required resolution with the incumbent regional sports partner. So they knew that no later than April 19th is the date of that press release. So they were aware of the conditionality. April 28th, I'm sorry. I apologize for that, Your Honor. They were also informed of that in writing, and this is Exhibit J to their original submission by Mr. Merritt here of Jones Day directly saying, again, this is conditioned to that. So from Gray's perspective, once we were introduced to this process, we have made the debtors abundantly clear that whatever deal we had was conditioned on what they were talking about. Thank you. And I take it, Your Honor, your point on the attorney's fees. If you have other questions about either that or 105A, I don't think for purposes of the contempt that they would have to show, they have come up with clear and convincing evidence as to any violation by the Gray parties here. Based upon, they only have, best I can tell, they rely on two pieces of evidence, one which is in the record, one which is not. The only thing they cite is the agreement in principle itself, and we think on its face that shows that we did not interfere in any way and shows the acknowledgement for their rights. The other point, Your Honor, is they rely in their papers, in their first brief, they make no mention of it in the second brief, about some unidentified person affiliated with Gray made some statement to an undefined master distribution person about this agreement. It's a hearsay statement. It's not in their actual declaration, so it's not even before the court in terms of evidence. So that's it. Whatever that is, it's not clear and convincing. And for those reasons, we don't think they even come close to showing the contempt, that there was any contempt by the Gray parties with respect to any property at issue here, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Let me hear from counsel for Kisway, if you have any proposed opening. Very briefly, Your Honor. Can Your Honor hear me okay? Yes, and I can see you too. That's perfect. Thank you. I just turned it on. Anyway, thank you, Your Honor, for allowing me to appear remotely. 
Uh, I'm going to be very brief um, because we are very similarly situated uh, to Gray. Um, and so in our papers, we filed a joinder and adopted Gray's um, arguments uh, in, in their opposition. And I'm going to do the same thing for uh, for argument. Um, and essentially, I'm, I'm going to adopt what Gray uh, just argued. I just wanted to point one other thing out to the court because uh, it, it's the one aspect in which we're different, uh, I guess, from Gray. And that is there's been a lot of colloquy about communications that went back and forth since April 19th. Uh, we weren't a part of those communications. Uh, we didn't send emails. We didn't receive the emails. Uh, we didn't issue press releases. Uh, that was all done through uh, other parties, uh, and, and we were not a party to that. With that, Your Honor, unless you have some questions for me, um, yeah. that'll do it. Thank you very much. Maybe we can all just talk briefly about potential documents getting admitted uh, by agreement of the parties and if it makes sense to do it now or if the parties have already thought about it. Um. Um, again, for the record, Brian Herman from Paul Weiss for the debtors. Um, we have had some discussions which we can turn to, but I would like to reply to some of the points that were made, not all of them, but some of them, if, if this is an appropriate time to do that. Uh, give me a second on the docs just so I don't forget them, and then, and then I'll give okay. you a chance to reply because then I have to open it up to everyone. <laughs> So I'm trying to avoid it. What can you tell me? Do you want me to go through the discussions that we've had? Uh, or no, more the agreement if there is any. Oh, not discussions. <laughs> I just if the parties agree, they can move. You can move separately for your docs. They can move separately for the. If there's agreement on things, then we can. I think we're in agreement. Um, subject to being corrected on uh, on what should be moved in, which is that all of the transaction documents can be moved in. I think really all of the exhibits can be moved in, but for uh, the uh, the news clippings that are attached to the Laufer Declaration, they did not want the other side did not want those moved in. We're okay with that, with the exception of the one uh, uh, article that did have the CEO quote where he said, we're going to move forward with the deal. I think they're okay with that coming in, not necessarily for the truth that he said that, although we can obviously depose the CEO if we need to to see if he actually said it. I believe he said it. Um, but we're okay um, moving it in on that basis. So why don't I just do it this way? Maybe how we're looking at your witness and exhibit list filed at 541. Um I know the sealed version's at 542, but so we'll, we'll agree on 541, 542. Maybe we can just go by docket num by sure. numbers, just so. And I'll consider 541 is the unsealed. 542 is the sealed for purposes of today. Um, why don't you put up? Maybe we can just talk about numbers. Um, yeah. That's so, agreement. Um, what would you propose to move in, and I'll see if there's agreement or disagreement on it. Yeah, I would propose to move in 542-2, mm -hmm. 542-3, 542-5 through 542-8, 542-11 to 542-12, um, 542-4 through 
9, 10, 13, 14, and 15. And then we had a supplemental uh, Laufer Declaration, which had attached to it 542-17 and 18. And I would propose to move those as well. Any objection to the admission of the documents referenced on the record? The only objection we have is to the hearsay statement in the press releases, but they can be they can be brought in subject to the objection to the hearsay statement. Got it. Okay. Um, so can one admit it for the purposes of that's what the article said and not for the truth of the matter asserted therein? We don't have that. We don't have an objection. Okay. So we'll just admit it then. Thank you. Okay. Okay. They're admitted for that purpose. Uh, with respect to the son's witness and exhibit one. Thank you, Your Honor. Nima Sani for Son's Legacy Partners, LLC. Our exhibits were filed at docket uh, 549. I would propose to move those into evidence. That's 549. 549, 549, 1, 549, 548-4, which may have already been. Why don't we just combine them just in terms of so we got straight numbers. I just, I, I got it. Some of them are sealed and some of them are not, and I've yeah. granted those to be sealed. Okay. So it's 548, 549, 549, 1, 549-2, 548-4, 549-3, 549-4, and 549-5. Any objection to the admission of those documents? No objection, Your Honor. Okay. They are admitted. Thank Let me you. hear from Gray. Thank you, Your Honor. The um, exhibits were uh, submitted, I believe it's 545 is the docket. Uh, number four, it's, it's very brief. It's two documents. Um, exhibit one is the term sheet that was filed under seal. And exhibit two is the press release that was issued by Gray, which is Exhibit 2. All right. Any, any objection to the admission of 545, 1, and 2? No objection, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Okay. Son's, uh, son's okay with it? Yes, we're okay with it. We've also moved into the declaration of Mr. Costello regarding first submitted. Okay. Just, uh, oh, let me just first. So 545, 1, and 2 are admitted. Let's see, Mr. Costello's declaration, where would I find that? I just want to make sure I've got it right. 549? 5, 530. 530. Oh, I'm sorry, 530. Okay. Any objection to the admission of 530? No objection, Your Honor. All right, 530 is admitted. Let me hear from uh, Kisway. Any documents you wish to move into evidence? Your Honor, we do not have any documents that we wish to move in. Okay. Is there any, is there any additional documents parties wish to move into evidence at this time? Okay. Mr. Herman, I'll turn it back over to you. How do you wish to proceed? Thank you, Your Honor. Um, Brian Herman for the debtors. Um, I just want to respond to some of the arguments from uh, the Sons and from Gray, um, and I'll try to do it as briefly as I can. Um, first, Your Honor, you know, listening to the explanation that was offered um, by the Sons Council as to why the April 19th letter 
contained a redacted version of the agreement with Kisway and, um, uh, and Gray, it dawned on me that this letter is actually more insidious than I thought, and I'll tell you why. The Sons Council said, well, they only sent us the economic terms because that's all that our back-end rights arguably pertain to. So what they leave out? They left out the conditionality that they're now relying on, and they left out the signature page. And shame on me that it didn't dawn on me yet, but I think I know why they did both, and I'm going to tell you why. They left out the conditionality because I think they did not want us to know that their deal was conditioned on our back-end rights. And the reason they didn't want us to know that is because they didn't want us to respond within five days that we would exercise the back-end rights, and they would then let the five days elapse, and under the contract, our back-end rights would have expired. So they were hoping, we said this in our reply, but we didn't quite understand why, they were hoping, fingers crossed, that we didn't respond, and they didn't want us to know that their deal was conditioned, because had we known that, we definitely would have responded because that would have given us leverage. That was their thinking, I'm quite sure. Don't give Diamond a reason to respond by showing them the conditionality. So we get a redacted agreement that they call an offer. Your Honor went through at length with the Sun's Council. Is it an agreement? Is it a term sheet? Is it a, an agreement in principle? Is it an offer? They call it an offer in the letter. They call it an agreement in principle in their pleading. Sometimes they call it a term sheet. But you heard today it was a binding agreement. They had a binding agreement on April 19th with Gray and Kisway. And that creates another problem for them. The problem with the binding agreement is what I pointed out in Section 21. They were not allowed under the contract to enter into an agreement that was binding until we exercised, had an opportunity to exercise our back-end rights. That's what the contract says. Your Honor went through with Sons Council, who makes the determination? The contract makes the determination. And if necessary, I'm happy to go through the provisions of Section 21 again to show you exactly why. There doesn't need to be the Sons' determination, our determination, a third party's determination. The contract is clear on its face that based on the agreement that they sent us, or the term sheet, or the agreement in principle, whatever it is, that when you compare that agreement to their last offer to us, it contains a less favorable term. We only have to find one, because the section 21 of, their, of our agreement says if any material term is less favorable, now it's a less favorable agreement. Once it's a less favorable agreement, our back-end rights are triggered. We don't need anybody to tell us that. All they need to do is show us the proposal. We compare it to the last proposal they made to us. If there's any material term that is less favorable, our back-end rights are triggered. So this April 19th letter is very damaging to them because they hid information from us that was pertinent to determining whether or not our back-end rights were triggered. But Maybe no harm, no foul, Your Honor, because we sent them a letter that basically said our back-end rights are triggered. Why did we send them that letter? Because we looked at the two proposals and we saw that there were material terms that were less favorable to, to the Suns in the gray 
Kisway deal than in the last proposal they made to us. So, A, I think the letter is completely insidious. B, I think the answer to your question of who determines whether our back-end rights are triggered is the agreement. And the agreement is clear on its face. There's no debate. If they have one, I'd love to hear it. But there is no debate. I think what they would tell you, because they said it in their papers, is that, well, the terms overall are better for Gray. I'm sorry, for the Suns. Well, that's great. That's great for the Suns. We're not looking to harm the Suns. If they have a better deal, by all means, they should go enter into a better deal. However, they have to comply with the back-end rights, which are triggered if any material term is less favorable. Not if the entire agreement is less favorable. Not if most of the terms are more favorable. Any provision, material provision, is less favorable. Our back-end rights are triggered. It's clear as day. Okay. Does Your Honor want me to go through the provision again, or, or are we good on that? I'm good. Okay. Um, so that, that's that. So, so then I take issue with the Sun's argument, which I find to be very rich, that we're standing here trying to get rights in bankruptcy that we don't otherwise have. Well, no, we're not. We have the rights. They're in the agreement. We're prepared to abide by the language in the agreement. They're the ones who are trying to ignore the agreement. So I take issue with that. Then they say, this is a direct quote from counsel. They say, well, we don't have an absolute right. We have a possible right. That's what he called it. We have a possible right. So I say, OK, let me give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that the language is not as clear as I say, which I don't think is the case. Your Honor can read it. And we have a possible right. Well, if we have a possible right, we're in the chestnut arena. Because that's what an arguable property right is. We think we have it. They think we don't. They can't deprive us of it. That's what the case says. And so we have a debate, at best for them. At worst, the agreement dictates that we have the right. So either way, they lose. Um, and Your Honor, the thing that I don't understand, and I listened to the argument from the Suns very carefully, the thing that I don't, and, and frankly from Gray, I'll come to Gray in a second. The thing that I don't understand is this. How does it work? Let's say that they sent us the letter. We respond. We now have a dispute. They have time is of the essence. Next season, they got to sell advertising. Have to figure out who's going to broadcast the games, all of which we are completely sympathetic. We, don't, we are not looking to slow down anything. OK, so how does it work? Where do we go from here? Do we have to have? A litigation over whether or not the back-end rights apply? Do we just sit quietly and hope they don't trample the rights? Or do they run away with the agreement with Gray and Kisway and just say, you know, uh, to heck with the, uh, the back-end rights? How does it work? And if it's a litigation, why is that a faster way to resolve this than just complying with the back-end rights? The back-end rights have prescribed periods for picking um, an appraiser making a determination, putting us on the clock for determining whether or not we want to match the offer. So I'm sitting here scratching my head trying to figure out what does, how does this conditionality that they built into their agreement actually work in practice if it doesn't mean that either they're going to trample our rights or it's going to take longer to figure out who's right. I don't understand it. Um, I want to make one more point about the Suns. Um, 
And I didn't object to the declaration of Mr. Costello, largely because I thought most of it didn't matter. Frankly, all of it didn't matter. But the one thing that I don't think should be lost here, and I think everybody's aware of it, so I don't think whether it's in the record or not makes any difference, and the Suns don't say this, but as you know, because I know you're a sports fan, the Suns have been for sale for months. They didn't have an owner. So they were looking to get a new owner who I think only took over the team a month ago, two months ago, some very short period of time ago. It's pretty hard to negotiate a new rights deal until you have your owner because presumably that owner is going to want to know what their rights deal is going to be. So I don't think it's fair to say that the delay was caused by Diamond. There were lots of reasons that this didn't get done on the timeline that they would have wanted, including that their, their own team was for sale. Um, let me turn to Gray. Um, I do think that Gray, I am more sympathetic to Gray and Kisway because they are third parties coming to the situation as opposed to the Sons who are our contractual counterparty and are in the situation already. However, um, and you know this from having practiced for so long, and I will tell you without giving away state secrets that I get nervous about sending even a reservation of rights letter to a debtor in bankruptcy for fear that I would violate the automatic stay. If I'm gray, I would cert and they're clearly well advised, I would certainly say, hey, is there anything about us entering into this agreement with the sons who are party to another agreement with a debtor in bankruptcy that would arguably cause us to violate the automatic stay? It'd be a logical question to ask. Frankly, the sons probably ask the same question. Are we violating the automatic stay by entering into this agreement? Maybe the question didn't dawn on them. Then we sent them a letter on April 27th, specifically, especially with respect to Gray. Again, they're new to the situation. We didn't know about Kissway, or, or maybe we forgot about Kissway. I can't honestly tell you. We were rushing. But Gray knew about um, uh, the situation. We were sympathetic because, hey, maybe Gray doesn't know that they're violating our back end rights. So we send them a letter. And we put them on notice, both of them. Hey, wait a second. You're going to violate the automatic stay. You better be careful. One would think if you hadn't already, at that point, you would say, wait a second. That's like you would say, wait a second. Maybe we should proceed more cautiously. Maybe we should take some time to figure out if we are, in fact, violating the automatic stay. Maybe we should call Diamond. Instead, all we got was a letter, or I'm sorry, an email from the general counsel of the Phoenix Suns, and she didn't say that our agreement has a condition in it, which by the way, again, they hadn't shared with us when they could have. She said, we're gonna revise our press release to say that the deal will be conditioned on this. Well, a press release isn't enforceable. What do we do with that? We said, don't make a press announcement. You're violating the automatic stay. She says, well, we're gonna revise the press release. She doesn't say the agreement contains a condition. But Gray did. Gray said, hey, you know, by the way, the agreement contains a condition. I said, great. I'd like to see the condition. They never sent, they never showed us the condition. They never sent us the agreement. So I do think Gray is slightly differently situated because they came to the situation as opposed to finding themselves in the situation from the get-go. But 
one would have thought if they were not going to willfully violate the automatic stay, they would have taken a pause on that Thursday night of April 27th and said, at least sent a young associate away and say, hey, you should go do some research and figure out if what we're doing is violating the automatic stay. And that young associate would have found the chestnut case, and somebody would have said, whoa, wait a second, this is way too close to the line, probably over the line. But they didn't do that. They just went ahead with their press announcement the next day and said, we're going ahead with this deal. Your Honor, that, that's like driving a car, seeing a sign that says reduce speed ahead, just ignoring it, continuing to exceed the speed limit, you're going to get a ticket because you're, you're violating the law. Well, that's what they did here. They said, thank you very much for warning us that we're about to violate the automatic stay. We're just going to issue our press release anyway. If that's not willful, intentional violation of the automatic stay, I don't know what is. Um, ah, the Grace Council makes a point that, well, Chestnut doesn't apply because the Gray contract is not arguable. It's a real contract. I don't dispute that. But we're not applying the Chestnut contract to the Gray contract. We're, I'm sorry, the Chestnut case to the Gray contract. We're applying the Chestnut case to our back-end rights, our right of first refusal. That's the arguable property. And we know it's arguable because we know from this hearing and we know from the conditionality which says any rights that Diamond may have will be respected. Any rights. They're telling us they don't think we have them. We think we do have them. At best, that's arguable property. That's Chestnut. That's why that case is so relevant. Um, trying to think if I have anything else on my list. Bear with me one second. I think that's it, Your Honor. Thank you very much. Let me ask you one question. I can't give me your best 362K argument and why you think it applies in this case. I would say the following. I think that there are clearly cases that go both ways. But first of all, let's start with the statute. The statute says individual. Right, there's no debating that. Okay? So on its face, it would seem like it does not apply. However, there's case laws that interprets it both ways. There's courts in this district, as you know from the, the papers, that say it doesn't apply. There's other courts that say it does, including the Fourth Circuit, uh, which says that uh, that's just silly. Of course, it should apply to uh, corporations as well. And so I think there's a, uh, a debate in the case law, and there is a um, I don't think there's anything binding on the court unless the court looks at the statute and says, I'm going to strictly interpret that statute, which I think is perfectly fair if that's what Your Honor decides. Having said that, there is a contempt sanction. It's a higher burden on us for sure, but it doesn't get them out of hot water. It just raises the burden on us to uh, show that um, with clear and convincing evidence that they willfully violated the automatic stay, which with some discovery, I think we can do. This was very expedited, Your Honor. We had to come in quickly. We didn't have the luxury of discovery. But I bet you, with some discovery, we can, we can learn an awful lot about who knew what, when, and what they were doing. Thank you. And is there any additional evidence that you wish to present in support of either the state violation or to compel 
that you wish to present at this time? No, Your Honor. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let me start with um, go to the sun, and then I'll go to gray, and then kiss way. That's okay. Do you want to keep it in the order? Thank you, Your Honor. I'd just like to make a few quick points. Mm -hmm. So first, I want to start where uh, Mr. Herman started. He started with the, the sort of factors to reach an automatic stay violation. It says there's an existing contract. This contract expires by its own terms at the end of this season. Mm -hmm. There is no further right to any games as of this point. There's no dispute as to any of that. Well, let me so, push you on that. Mm -hmm. I don't want to get too much into the contract, but doesn't the contract contemplate that if another carrier um, it does contemplate postseason games, right? Potentially, potential right to postseason games. There is one playoff game through which they have a side-by-side -side telecast, right? That playoff game has already happened. So they have no, at this point, and I don't think anyone would disagree with this, they have no guaranteed right to telecast any future Suns games. What about a potential right? They have possible rights, okay. correct? So let, let's go back to then this question of, are there any rights? Are possible rights property of the estate? Right. So they have this question of, do the back-end rights apply? We contend they clearly do not. That's our understanding of the contract. I understand they have a different view. Mm -hmm. We have a dispute. However, in order to show an automatic stay violation, they have to show there's actually been a breach of that contract, and there has not been. And I want to walk through that briefly. But I want to get to also the other point that even if there was a breach, mm -hmm. that is not sufficient to reach an automatic stay violation. And we, we cite a half a dozen cases on that point in our briefs. But let's start on, Your Honor was focused on this April 19th period, so I'd like to start there for a second. So we sent the letter dated April 19th, and they had five days to respond. On April 25th, they responded and said, you know, we'd like to talk about this. And the very next day, and this is all detailed in Mr. Costello's declaration, the very next day, the Suns reached out and said, we, we disagree that there's any back-end rights triggered here. There's no offer owed. There's no reason for us to have even presented this offer. Nonetheless, we're still willing to work with you. And that back and forth happened. Then they get on the phone. And then on April 27th, and Mr. Herman already read this email into the record, the GC of the Sun sends a note to the GC of Diamond saying, I wanted to send a quick note that we have updated the official press statement being released tomorrow to, quote, state that the new media deal is subject to any required resolution with DSG. Was that before or after you received the, the 27th letter? Was that email sent? That was on April 27th after the cease and desist letter. Okay. And then on the 28th, that press release goes out. But I want to be clear, and that press release contains that same subject to any required resolution language, which tracks what's in the term sheet. All of this happened before Diamond ran to, ran to this court last week on May 3rd. So the notion that they're standing here in court saying, oh, we didn't know, they had been told in numerous ways. They had been told by Gray. They had been told in our press statement. They had been told in this email correspondence. In every way, we had made clear, we're still willing to engage with you. We're still willing to talk about a process. And even after that. Is there something in the record you can point me to where you say that? Your Honor, it's detailed in Mr. Not, not you. I'm sorry. Your, Your Honor, it's detailed in Mr. Costello's declaration, that timeline, and I can point you to the specific paragraphs if that would be useful. That'd be helpful. Thank you. 530, right? That is correct. Just point me to paragraph numbers. I know it's sealed. 
Okay, this timeline is detailed from paragraphs 18. Mm -hmm. Hold on, I'm, I'm pulling oh, it up, I apologize. For sure, you're on. No, 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 I'm sorry, my computer's. Okay, I'm up. 18. 18 through 22. Why don't you point me to a sentence? Okay, so it starts with providing the offer as a courtesy in section 18. April 25th, we received a letter from Diamond responding to our notification. Quote, the very next day we reached out in an attempt to seek to resolve the dispute with Diamond. Where's the evidence of that? Well, I'm happy to have... It would have been April 26th, right? That would have been April 26th. And there was this email exchange. We've been putting it in the record. I'm happy to put um, a, a witness up to, to speak to the exchange if that would be useful. You get to put on your case. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand the timeline. Okay, so tw the April 26th, the GC reaches out in an attempt to try to resolve the issue. What does the GC say? The April 26th communication says, Thank you, Philip. I've had a chance to review your letter. While we continue to disagree with your position, that the third-party offer is defined in your April 25th correspondence. You don't have to read into the record. I'm just trying to understand. What you're, you're, yes, you're I'll characterize it. She says, we disagree that any back-end rights have been triggered, which is our position on the contract. But I would like to set up a time for you and I to discuss the next steps in the most expeditious way. And, then the and she day. provides her availability. And then the next day the press release goes out? No, then the next days, day um, they, I think, get on the phone and there's some conversation that happens on April 27th. And following that, she writes and says, as a follow-up to our discussion, I just wanted to send a quick note that we have updated the official press statement being released tomorrow to state that the new media deal is subject to any required resolution with DSG. Let me, here's, a, here's an interesting question that I have, is the letter that was, and maybe that's not a distinction, maybe it's a distinction without a difference, but if you, in the record, the actual what we would call the binding term sheet is on the has a footer that's dated March of 2023, but the letter that you sent has a footer dated as April 2023. And I, I obviously we don't have a side by side comparison, but maybe you can tell me if there was a meaningful difference between what was sent in March and what was sent in April. What was signed in March, I should say, and what was signed in April. It was not signed in March, Your Honor. That might just be a footer of a sort of legacy. Kind of when you um, sign it, it updates it automatically. Yeah, let me see if I can look at the exact words, like the footer you're referring to, Your Honor. Okay. So the, the binding term sheet is dated April 19th. And that is, I, I don't know why it has that March 2023 date. There were still discussions. that The binding term sheet was agreed to in late April. So we're talking, you know, all happening within the span of a week in which they then send the, the notice to Diamond, they continue to engage. I'm not entirely sure where that footer comes from. Okay. And, and I do want to note on the binding piece, um, it's important to realize that where we are is we're up against a timeline. In order to actually, and Mr. Costello spells this out in his declaration, get ready for a switch that could happen next season. We need clarity now, and we can't be in a position where we don't have a binding agreement with Gray. Diamond, we go through a process, they continue to delay, as had been the process in the MO all along, 
and then we're left with nothing. So we needed to at least have some binding terms with Gray while we then subject to any required resolution with Diamond. And we have a dispute there, and that was clear in both the terms of the offer as well as the press statement that we made. So there has been no breach under any of these circumstances. Now, even if there were, we have disagreements on the contract, or we want to create a process to resolve those. But even if there were a breach, that is insufficient to find a violation of the automatic stay. And we cite several cases in this regard. And I'd like to read the key quote that I think is instructive here. And this is at page 15 of our brief. And it's from the NAUAL court case 391-BR-791-806. If breach of a contract were a violation of the automatic stay, then every contract right of a debtor in bankruptcy would be subject to specific performance and adjudication by the bankruptcy court without a jury, a proposition that is completely at odds with contract law. Now, I just want to be clear. That's what is happening here. They don't have a specific performance right under the contract. If the parties disagree about what the contract means, they have to go through a process, a litigation. They have to have a breach of contract dispute, whether it be a lawsuit or otherwise, to figure that out. The contract does not give debtors a specific performance right in this regard. What they're trying to do is say, because we're in bankruptcy, now we get a specific performance right that we don't otherwise have and didn't otherwise bargain for. But in order to do that, a mere breach is not enough. There was no breach. And Mr. Herman repeatedly cites to the Chestnut case, but there's several issues with that case. First, it presupposes that there's some right to begin with, which we don't agree with, and that there's some foreclosure or deprivation having happened, which there isn't because we have made clear throughout we remain willing to engage with you on a process, even until most recently over the past day and so forth. We're looking to figure out some process to get that, quote, required resolution with DSG. So I go back to asking, then, who makes the call? Your Honor, I think we would submit that there's a process, whether it be an appraiser or some sort of adjudication process, that would need to happen quite expeditiously given the timing. Who's the adjudicator? I think it could be an appraiser, and the parties could talk about that, somebody who understands these deals. That could be an option here. I do think, however, there's no way other than through this bankruptcy proceeding that they would be entitled to anything else, and they're not entitled to it in this bankruptcy proceeding. I just want to make sure I'm clear, just for the record. I refer to a March and April. So in the April 19th letter, the term sheet that's attached to it, the portions of it, have a footer that say April 2023, attached to the Sons' Declaration, the exhibit, right, your exhibit that attaches a copy of the binding term sheet has a footer that's dated in March. That's where I just want to make sure that I was clear on the record. I apologize if I wasn't. Your Honor, I am not aware of why that is. In my understanding, it was not executed in March. It was 
April 19th as dated on the cover sheet. So it's got a March 2023 on the bottom, and it's signed by all the parties on the footer. That's, and maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but it's, but it, it does say it's effective as of a certain date later, but sometimes I just wanted to make sure that I was looking at the same thing and that there was no distinction between the two. Just a question. Um, I, I just yeah, want to make sure that I, I was looking at that it was, that it was kind of what was sent on April 19th, which is the same day that you all received this. It must have been the same day that you all signed it, but there was a footer yeah. stated in March on that day, but then the one that got sent to the to the your Honor, could just I, be somebody copied and pasted and then you know put it into a separate doc and then it created a new footer. I, I don't know the reason possible. for that footer, Your Honor. I, I do know that the, what you know the actual agreement is dated April nineteenth. I, I, I know it's effective as of that day. I don't know if it's dated. I don't know when people signed it. When people signed it, um, I can I mean, April nineteenth. I'm not saying it's not. I just that, that was my question and I wanted to make sure that I was can clear. Get an answer to that okay. question, Your Honor, but I do think it was closer to that April nineteenth time period. And I, I just want to go back to the main point, which is that. Mm -hmm. There is no contract right to have an automatic stay violation here. That's only something that they get under this, you know, taking advantage of their bankruptcy status. But they don't get the right to stop this. They have the right for us to engage in a process to work through any dispute. And we stand ready and have stood ready for weeks, months, and since January of 2022 to honor any rights they have, if they have any, which to be clear, we don't believe they do. Okay. So when you mean they don't have a right to stop this, what is the this that you're referring to? Well, they don't have a right to an auto to get a, an automatic stay violation and whatever relief they are seeking in connection with that. We remain ready to engage with them on any required resolution subject to the contract um, because we have different views of what the contract means, and we remain ready to, to adjudicate or litigate that issue. Okay, thank you. I just wanted to make sure I was I was clear. Yeah, I, I think I've made this clear, Your Honor, but I'm, I'm being told my colleague I haven't made it sufficiently clear, so I will say it one time more. We feel very clear that we have not violated any term of the contract, but even if there were, it's not enough to amount. Breach. Correct. Breach doesn't, breach doesn't always equal automatic. Correct, Your Honor. Got it. Got it. No, no. I'm, I appreciate it. Oh, let me ask before I bring her up, is there any other evidence that you wish to present in support? Or can I close the... I just, I don't want to go to gray without giving the sons an, an opportunity. If Your Honor wouldn't mind, let me just quickly confer on our end. Okay. I will, uh, if it's okay, we'll just go out of turn. I'll just bring gray up and then kiss away. Thank you, Your Honor. I'll, I'll, I will be brief. Okay. Uh, you don't have to be. I, I know people say that all the time. I, I, it will take as much time. In it. Folks, I have a 1 o'clock docket. I'm just going to ask the parties to indulge me. I'm going to continue. I'm gonna, we're going to work straight through, so um, please continue. I, I appreciate your indulgence, no. Your Honor. Thank you very much. Uh, um, there essentially is going to be four points, and I'll try to be bullet points and, and discreet. Um, first, uh, uh, counsel, Mr. Herman, raised certain points. Uh, some were shot at Sun, some were at Gray. I'll try to restrict my comments. But one of the ones was there was a lot of discussion about what was in or not in that April 19th letter that, that they received about the conditions and things like that. And from Gray's perspective, as a 
apparently a violation of the stay. Obviously, we were not involved in any of those letters. We didn't know what the content of the letter was. We didn't have any knowledge of what their specific rights are. And as I stand here in front of you right now, we don't know what those rights are. All that we did was to make sure that the preliminary agreement in principle, which was executed, absolutely carved out whatever rights they have under that contract. And we made it conditioned expressly in that agreement. And it's self-effectuating. So if that doesn't happen, that preliminary agreement in principle dissolves. It is deemed void ab initio. Those are the words in that provision itself. It completely evaporates. It doesn't exist. And that's a very important point, Your Honor, because unless that condition occurs, nothing can happen. You can't go to the next step in a final. Second, he says, and I believe Mr. Herman accidentally misspoke. He mentioned my discussion of the Chestnut case. And I believe what he said in his rebuttal is that I suggested that they don't have an arguable contract. That's not my point at all. So if it was unclear to Mr. Herman, let me make it more clear. We don't know what they have, whether they have an executory contract, what rights they have on it. We're not disputing whether they have an arguable contract. That was the issue in Chestnut, and that was the issue the Fifth Circuit wrestled with. My point is that's not the issue here. The issue in Chestnut that was not in dispute was that there was an actual act of physical seizure of the property and sale. What it did not address was whether the acts in this situation of a contract that specifically carves out whatever rights they have and is completely conditioned on those rights being honored, whatever they may be, constitutes an exercise of control and act. That's my point. That's the reason Chestnut doesn't apply, because in that regard, it is incredibly weak and doesn't apply. And neither does the only two cases they cite in their brief, which I've already discussed earlier, and I won't repeat it here. Third, it says, well, I'm sympathetic to Gray, but they went ahead anyway. And if they had just sent an associate to the library, they could have seen it was clear as day this was a violation. Well, they did go to the library, and I'm sure they've got a lot of really good associates over there, and they don't cite one case that says even remotely similar to this situation where you have an agreement that specifically carves out and conditions any future steps upon the debtor's agreement being honored and respected for whatever rights it has is a violation of the automatic stay. We look high and low. I'm sure they did, too. If it were there, Your Honor, it would be in there, and we submit that that is not the case. Last, they make some points about not receiving the confidential agreement in principle from Gray. It wasn't mentioned in his opening remarks. He did mention it. Mr. Herman mentioned it in his rebuttal. I do want to say again that I think this tilts against them because they're the ones, the debtors, that 
have the burden here of showing a breach of the automatic stay. They're the ones who have to show that Gray engaged in some type of act that violated the stay. What do we know that's undisputed? We know that on April 28th, Gray made a public statement that specifically stated that whatever deal we have with the Sons is conditioned upon the resolution of whatever rights the incumbent provider has. That is a statement by a publicly traded company subject to the securities laws. That in and of itself has integrity and credibility, and no one in this room disputes the accuracy of it. Also on April 28th, they received a letter from Mr. Merritt, counsel to Gray, making that same point as an officer of the court. They knew this. Then over the weekend, prior to us having to respond, they've already accused us at this point of violating the act, but we're on specific notice of those two unrebutted facts. And they said, well, we demand that you give us this confidential agreement. Your Honor, we believe that was commercially unreasonable for the same reasons it's commercially unreasonable for us to expect them to share all of the confidential terms of that contract, which you had to sign many orders to seal over the last few days, because they don't want us to see it either. And so we don't think our conduct in any way was commercially unreasonable. And in any event, when we submitted the agreement, it simply confirmed the information that we had already represented to them. And with that, Your Honor, I have no further comments. I just have one question for you. Let's see. Your exhibit isn't fully executed. You never signed the version that you filed. Should I just follow or should I just use the one that's fully executed that was signed by the Gray and Kiswai? Yes, Your Honor. I mean, I think they're both evidence, but if Your Honor would like to refer to the one that's fully executed. I just want to make sure it's okay. I haven't done a side-by-side comparison of what you submitted versus whatever, but there's a fully executed version. It's okay if I rely on that one as the binding term sheet. Yes, Your Honor. And let me go back and double-check on our side, but I think standing here that that would be fine. Okay. And I'm looking at 554-1. Thank you. Okay. Let me turn to Kiswai. Your Honor, Kiswai does not have any rebuttal. Thank you. Okay. Your Honor, I wanted to address the evidentiary. Uh-huh. Thank you, Your Honor. I would like to submit into evidence the email exchange, which we could provide for Your Honor, that both parties have been referring to and both parties have quoted now from between Melissa Goldenberg, dated 4-27-2023, and Philip Garabagian, and that's the one that both Mr. Herman and I have been quoting. Mr. Herman, any objection? I don't have an objection as long as we can see the entire chain. If it's the entire chain, I have no objection. I don't know. I think if it's possible, how do I see it? Maybe there's a way. Do you think you all can agree on the hard copy and then I can just take a quick look at it? We have extra copies in court, hard copies, so we're happy to share. Do you want to just take a look at it and then I can look at it? Yeah. 
And Your Honor, while, while we're looking at that, um, I did also get clarity that the agreement, um, the DocuSign was on April 18th or April 19th. We're trying to figure out the exact date, but it was, it was not the March issue yet. Okay. Your Honor, this version is fine. There's an additional chain at the top, but I'm happy to provide it with your, with the, to the court with your leave. That's, please. Y'all yeah, are okay with that? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to read this carefully. I'm going to think about saying I'm going to come back in 10 minutes and I'm going to give you a ruling. Your Honor, uh, if I may. I just um, want to come back I, and read this. Yep, that's fine. I rise just to clarify one thing that the Sons Council, I think, misstated, and it's pretty important in, in her argument, um, and I don't think the record should stand incorrect, and that is that there is a specific performance provision in the contract. It's in Section 30D of, of our agreement with the Sons. And <clears throat> if Your Honor would indulge me, I'm... I'd like to just read it. No, no, no. I'll read it. If you point me to 30 days, that's all I yeah. need. Thank you, Your Honor. Yeah. Okay. Your Honor, and I, and I, um, I think I did miss what it says. But, but I also corrected the record to make clear that they don't have any right to an automatic stay violation. No, no, no. Got it. Got Thank it. you, Your I, Honor. I know what you meant. Uh, Thank you. Just give me about, yeah, I'll come back in about 10 minutes. I just want to read this and, and take a look at some notes based on everything that was argued today, and then I'll come back. At 125, and I'll and I'll give you a ruling on on all of this. And for the folks who started at one o'clock, uh, I'm going to start with. Um, give me a second. I'm going to start with Crowd. Uh, Rosario, see if we can get Crowd on the line. Tell them I'm going to start around 145, and then I'll turn to ARI uh, after that. And I appreciate the party's indulgence. I'll come back in, at 125. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor.
All right, back on the record. Diamond Sports. Your Honor, uh -huh. I see the Suns lawyers. Um, oh, we'll give them a minute. Yeah. Absolutely. Are we waiting on anyone else? All right. Well, let's see. Yes, yeah, so let's cancel the kiss way on the line. I want to make sure we can. I am. Okay. I am, Your Honor. Just Thank wanted you. to make sure you were there. I, uh... Okay. All right, so before the court is a motion filed by uh, a debtor seeking entry of an order enforcing the automatic stay about the son's alleged breach of their agreement with uh, the debtor Diamond Sportsnet Arizona. Um, well, referred to as Diamond Arizona, that is also seek to compel the sons to comply with that agreement, what I'll call the existing agreement, um, enforcing the automatic stay also as to Gray Television and Kissway Mobile Inc., um, avoiding uh, what was referred to in the debtor's papers, at least as the replacement agreement, and uh, awarding damages to Diamond Arizona caused by uh, the sons. Gray and or Kissway's um, violations of alleged violations of the automatic stay. Um, the Suns, Gray, and Kissway deny obviously stay violations. Um, so based on the evidence that's been before me, and I appreciate all the arguments and all the briefing before the court. I spent a lot of time thinking about these issues and took a lot of time thinking about the um, the briefing. Uh, ahead and the party's arguments, and I uh, tried to be as prepared as possible for for today. And I hope appreciate the preparation for the parties as well. But based upon the evidence, I'm going to find that the sons violated Section 362A3 of the code. Um, there's not enough evidence in the record to find that Gray and Kissway did. Um, the sons are going to be ordered to comply with the the existing agreement on its terms. Um, and by that, I, I'm going to caution both. Um, the sons, and, and I'll, I'll issue one to the debtors, um, you know, needless and unjustified delays uh, under the terms of the agreement, and I've read the agreement, and in terms of finding an appraiser, including strategic or, or tactical delays, and I'm not saying there are, I'm just saying it, um, they're not going to be viewed favorably by the court. Um, and as for damages, I'm not going to award any damages today. I reserve the right to conduct a full evidentiary hearing on a later date Compliance with the terms of the agreement are really going to determine whether there's a need for such a hearing. Um, I'll give you a little background. 
for the record, Diamond, Arizona, entered into the telecast rights agreement with the Sun in 2011. Really, it was Fox Sports, not Arizona, Inc., the predecessor. The terms of the agreement are 12 years old and expire at the end of the season, which includes the postseason. The agreement provides what the parties have referred to consistently throughout today as the back-end rights, including a right of first refusal. That is, bankruptcy cases started in March of 2023. Upon the filing of Diamond, Arizona's case, a bankruptcy estate was created. Section 548.81 of the code states that the estate includes all of the debtor's legal and equitable interest in property that existed on the petition date. Property of the estate is construed broadly under the law because 541 uses the term all legal or equitable interest. Thus, on the petition date, all of Diamond, Arizona's legal and equitable interest and rights in the existing agreement became property of the estate. Another thing happened the moment the bankruptcy petition was filed. That is that the automatic stay went into effect. The automatic stay is one of the fundamental debtor protections provided by the bankruptcy laws. I'm citing to the Midlantic v. New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, 474 U.S. 494, 1986 Supreme Court case. It will come as no surprise that the Fifth Circuit has said the purpose of the automatic stay is to protect the debtor's assets, provide temporary relief from creditors, and further equity of distribution among creditors by forestalling a race to the courthouse. Reliant Energy Services v. Enron Canada Corp., 349 F. 3rd, 816, pinpoint 825, Fifth Circuit, 2003. The automatic stay is meant to give a debtor breathing room from its creditors to preclude one creditor from pursuing a remedy to the disadvantage of others to provide the debtor a reasonable break to have a chance to formulate a Chapter 11 plan. In Ray Commonwealth Oil Refining Co., 805 F. 2nd, 1175, pinpoint 1182, Fifth Circuit, 1986. Section 362A.3 stays any act to obtain possession of property of the estate or to exercise control over property of the estate. A couple of things to focus on. First is that the section stays any act. So it's intended to state all actions, right, all efforts. Second, the intent of the violator or knowledge of the case isn't relevant. All we look for is that an act violates the stay. And in the Fifth Circuit, acts that violate the stay are voidable. Now let's turn to what happened after the stay went into effect. On April 19th, this is undisputed, the Suns sent Diamond, Arizona a letter informing them about what we will call an offer from Gary and Kisway. I would note, and it's stated on the record, I say that the document attached uses a defined term, a agreement in certain parts. It doesn't say that the agreement is subject to any rights for Diamond, Arizona under the existing agreement. That language we know now was intentionally omitted. On April 25th, Diamond, Arizona timely responds and seeks to use its rights under the agreement between the parties. I won't get into the specifics. There is an email exchange that came into the record on April 26th with General Counsel from the Suns to Diamond, Arizona, where she indicates that the proposed press release will include one sentence indicating that the agreement is subject to any existing rights. 
with him under the agreement. Uh, April 27th, the Suns informed Diamond Arizona it's going to issue a press release. Um, on April 27th, Diamond Arizona's counsel emails letters to the Suns, Gray, and Kissway about potential automatic stay violations. All right. I see no formal response from the Suns, um, really, to the April the, the substance of the April 25 letter or the April 27 letter. Instead, they start a media campaign about a new agreement. The Suns issue a press release announcing a deal with Gray and Kissway. The press release lauds for several pages about charting the next era by quote unquote signing a media deal and about benefits of the new deal. The last line, however, uh, states that the new media rights agreement is subject to approval from the NBA and required resolution with the incumbent regional sports partner. Um, there are other press releases where Diamond uh, seems to indicate in the public that they believe there's a press release and there are at least alleged statements made by the Sun CEO disagreeing with that position. Um, Diamond Arizona says Suns, Gray, and Kissway violated the stay. Um, Gray and Kissway say they signed a deal that's expressly subject to final resolution of the issues and they had no access to the actual agreement. They didn't get visibility into it. Based on evidence, I don't think there's enough here to find a stay violation right now. Things may change, though. And parties should remain vigilant uh, about the automatic stay and that this court will, vi will vigorously enforce it because it benefits all debtors and creditors. And without it, the bankruptcy process is useless. Let me turn to the Suns. Diamond Arizona argues that their agreement is an executory contract, that the agreement is property of the estate, that the Suns attempted to exercise control over property of the estate, by entering into what they call the replacement agreement. The Suns argue the replacement agreement doesn't violate the terms of the existing agreement because it's subject to resolution of issues with Diamond Arizona, that it's only a term sheet, that it may not even be executory, and that their actions that merge breach the existing agreement, but breaches aren't violations of the automatic stay. Um, some may think that a creditor only violates the say when it actually exercises control under Section C-362-3. But a careful reading of the text reveals differently. Section 362 reveals uh, stays acts. That's even an attempt to exercise control violates the stay. Now it's true, not every public statement violates the automatic stay, and not every breach of contract violates the stay, right? And why you said they cited cases, right? But hey, it's the reasoning of the cases and what was going on in those cases that really matters. So. Courts have to weigh each statement and, and breach of contract, right, based on the evidence in that case, or alleged breach of contract in this case. In this case, statements and failure to comply um, with the existing agreement, I see as an effort to impede Diamond Arizona's rights of first refusal as an act. The attempt to exercise control is voidable, just as much as any exercise of the actual control itself. Based on the evidence, I find that the Suns violated Section 362A3 of the Code, right? And sometimes you look at acts as separate individual actions. Sometimes you, they paint the picture. And to me, I have a picture today. April 19th letter, omitting language that, that it's a term sheet, or the term sheet subject to resolution of the Diamond Arizona Agreement, 
Well, that is binding upon the sons, Kisway and Gray. Uh, and that it was signed, right? The term sheet itself may constitute an impermissible entry into a new agreement under the existing agreement, right? The term agreement is not defined, but it could be construed as entering into one as contemplated in that section. There's no real response to the debtor's April 25th or April 27th letters. Instead, the sons go out in all-out media blitz about the new agreement, lauding its benefits. There's no response about process. What I find is that the sons are saying one thing outside of this court and another thing inside it. Um, and that's not to, an accusation about the sincerity of the professionals who are here today or the general counsel. I think everybody's been practicing with the highest ethical standards. But what I am saying is that adding a one-liner on the bottom of a press release doesn't change the fact that there was a clear act or set of acts to exercise control over this agreement or to impede the rights of the sons to exercise their agreement. No one ever responded to them. There's no evidence about that and saying, let's set up an appraiser or, or I disagree. Let's take this to court. Let's go to Judge Lopez and determine um, what sections apply or not. Um, I'm also saying that you don't play around with the automatic stay. You don't draft right up to the line of the automatic stay. You honor the stay and you seek relief from it or you seek a declaration from the court that it doesn't apply. The sons in their papers imply that a contract dispute between the parties is not core, implicating that I may not have jurisdiction. I saw that in the paper, so let me clear that one up too. The issues before the court implicate what is or is not property of the estate, the administration of the estate, claims the estate is alleging against other parties, including the sons, uh, and it deals with the adjustment of the debtor-creditor relationship, right? So resolution of these disputes is core. And I'll be ready to address them if necessary. Let me say a word about 362K. The bankruptcy code states that an individual injured by any willful violation of a stay can recover damages, including costs and attorney's fees, and if in appropriate circumstances, can even recover punitive damages. The word individual is not defined in the bankruptcy code, but it's referenced dozens of times in the bankruptcy code, really about 70 times. In its proper context, it refers to a human. Uh, Section 101.41 of the code defines a quote-unquote person. And the definition of person includes an individual, a partnership, and a corporation. This is the term, the fine term Congress used, decided to use when it wanted to include humans, individuals, and corporate entities. Congress even defined a debtor under Section 101 as a person, right, which includes debtor, a corporate entity and individual that starts a bankruptcy case. Under Section 109A of the Bankruptcy Court, only a person, as defined in the code, uh, who resides or has a domicile, place of business or property, may be a debtor. And under 109B, a quote-unquote person, may be a Chapter 7 debtor, right, because you have individuals and corporate debtors. But under 109E, only an individual can be a Chapter 13 debtor. Right, familiar to Chapter 11 cases. Let me stay out of the Chapter 13 realm here today. Uh, retention applications, right, under 327, right, professionals must be uh, disinterested, which means they, uh, we look for insiders under Section 101.31. Insider, the definition of insider itself distinguishes between if the debtor uh, is an individual, corporation, and a partnership, 
which is separately, corporation is also separately defined in 101.9 of the code. So there are many more examples under the code. These are just a few. Congress did not use the word person under Section 362K. It used individual. Um, thus, I agree with the line of cases holding that 362K does not apply to corporations. I don't do so blindly, though. I do it based on the text, and now you have my reasoning. So here's my ruling. Um, the Sons Acts, described based upon the evidence presented to the court, violated Section 362A3. And um, to the extent that the, what I would call the Sons-Kissway agreement as defined, right? It defined, the term sheet defines it as an agreement, impacts in any way the debtor's rights under the existing agreement, including the back-end rights. I'm going to deem it void today. The sons are ordered to immediately comply with their existing agreement. They say they're willing and able to do so and ready to do so. Well, let's start today. The parties may work out their issues consensually, come up with an appraiser, figure out what's, well, I don't want to get into the terms, but um, y'all can take a shot, but don't wait too long. I'm hearing that time is of the essence. And again, I'm cautioning all parties that needless and unjustified delays in performance under the contract will not be viewed favorably by me. Um, and as for damages, I'm not going to award damages for now, but I reserve the right to conduct a full evidentiary hearing on a later date. Compliance is going to determine whether there's a need to have that hearing. So um, that's my ruling based upon where we are today. Um, I'm going to enter an order today largely based upon what the debtors submitted today. Uh, I'm not going to award any damages, but I'm going to reserve the right to do so at a later date. I also think um, what I'm really asking for the parties is um, I understand that there could be differences. I, whether the debtor ultimately uh, oh, that has several options, whether the debtor uses them, can comply with them, but the right of the debtor to have a shot under the agreement is what I'm preserving and protecting today. Um, and that includes the ROFR and any other back-end rights that the parties may have. Um, I think if there's a dispute about the contract, I think the smart thing would be to come to this court based upon everything that you're hearing today. Don't want to hear. Um, I really would rather avoid having disputes about things that have already happened after you've heard my views about what I see, the way I see the contract and where things go. Um, I'm also not going to rewrite the contract. That's not what bankruptcy courts do. Uh, so I'm not going to put this on an expedited schedule. But what I am asking the parties is to act accordingly. So the contract says what it says. Um, parties can get together. And if there's any issues, um, you can come to me. Um, I'll be ready um, if the time being. I appreciate everyone's time. And um, does anyone have any questions about where we go from here? OK, folks, thank you very much for your time. I'll enter a short order. About 1.45, uh, Mr. Fuquay, I see you out there. And folks, just give me, I'm just going to give a, a moment for the courtroom to clear. Uh, Mr. Cosmo, I see you there. Just if we could start in 10 minutes, that'd be great. I just want to give out folks an opportunity um, to, to to clear out of the courtroom. And I very much appreciate everyone's time. Uh, to the extent that I have, I'll just note, and I'll say this for, really for Diamond Sports, I, 
I was trying to sign all the motions to seal to the extent I missed one. Someone just reach out to my case manager. If there was a pro hoc that I missed, reach out to my case manager. Um, where things go with the adversary, I just ask that you all kind of huddle up. Maybe this issue gets resolved first. Um, and if we have to, we'll take it from there. Okay? Thank you very much for your time. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Rob.